Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to the evangelist Luke, as recorded in chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he said, A man of noble birth traveled to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. He called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Conduct business until I return, he said to them. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to be king over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he summoned the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what they had gained by conducting business. The first one came to him and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very smart matter, you will have authority over ten cities. The second one came and said, Master, your mina has produced five more minas. So he said to him, You will be over five cities. And another one came and said, Master, here is your mina that I laid away in a piece of cloth. For I was afraid of you, since you are a demanding man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, You wicked servant, I will judge you with your own words. You knew that I am a demanding man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to those standing there, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's another similar parable that's told And this one is told on Wednesday of Holy Week, literally two days before Jesus is crucified. And that one's recorded in Matthew chapter 25, where he gives each a talent, which is also a measure of money. Now, in that parable, it becomes clear that it's the spiritual and natural gifts God gives us. And hence, we took that word talent and got our English word talents today. But that parable is told under different circumstances, and the measure of unit of money represents something totally different. In fact, today's account, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he just visited this tax collector's house, this guy named Zacchaeus. I don't know if you know about him. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Sorry, I'll start singing the song. But as we're told in our text, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We know just from the things the disciples say, even after Jesus appears to them after his resurrection, that they think the kingdom of God is Jesus gathering an army and driving the Romans out of Jerusalem. In fact, maybe even chasing the Romans all the way back to Rome and being the next big great empire. So Jesus tells this account uh, to, to, to explain things about his kingdom and how his kingdom grows. So today we're going to ask the question, what are the minus and who are all the people in this? Now, the very first person we want to deal with is probably the easiest to answer. Who's the nobleman? Jesus is true God who became true man. You don't get more noble than being God. But 
We know Joseph's genealogy from Matthew, and it appears that Luke is actually giving Mary's genealogy. Through both of them, it's clear to see that Jesus is a descendant of David. So Jesus has royal earthly blood, but there had not been anyone sitting on David's throne for over 500 years. Being God makes you a nobleman, no matter whose genealogy you would take on. So it's very obvious to us that the nobleman is Christ, true God, who became true man because you and I can't keep the law, not even for one hour, not even really for one minute if we think about our thoughts alone. So he became true man. He did that for us. And he has to remove our sins. So he goes to the cross. He bears the punishment for our sins. His blood washes our sins away. It doesn't end there, though. He dies in our place that we might have life. He rises that we might have life. And 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends to heaven where he's gone to his heavenly throne to rule over creation, to bring you into and keep you in the faith. So the day when this king comes back, because he's already ruling for his kingdom, so the day when he returns, that would clearly be judgment day. So we see in all of this that the nobleman is clearly Christ, whose departure is his death, resurrection, and ascension, and his return is judgment day. Now, let's get into the easiest group of subjects to deal with, which is actually the last one. In verse 14, we're told, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be king over us. Now, in the inspired Greek language that Luke recorded in, it's actually, but his subjects kept on hating him. And I want to emphasize that because there were guys like Saul who hated the Lord. He was persecuting the church. And then the Lord said, no, you're going to be a believer and an apostle. Paul stopped hating the Lord. God put his love in his heart. So it's those who kept on hating the Lord right up until the end. And when it says we don't want this man to be king over us, literally that's to rule over us. See, in this life, you are either a slave to sin, death, and the devil, or you are a slave to God's righteousness. There's no in-between. There's no neutral ground there. Now, we don't like that word slavery in America, slave to righteousness, but you've got to recognize if you're a slave to God's righteousness, then you're his child. You are prince and princesses then. But these people, they didn't want the love of Christ ruling over their heart. They would rather have the things of this world. And so in verse 27 that ends our text, uh, the, the nobleman who is Jesus says, now as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king or rule over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. The Greek verb there is probably translated, kill is fine, probably translated even better, execute. How is it that God kills those who don't want them ruling in his heart? That's when they are sentenced to an eternity of hell. That is the true and the most awful death of scripture. So it becomes very clear that the subjects who hated him are unbelievers. So we see that the nobleman who becomes king is clearly Christ and the subjects who hated him are unbelievers. Now, who has Christ made servants to grow his kingdom? We're told in verse 13, he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Conduct business until I return, he said to them. The number 10 in scripture, when you get into symbolic language and everything, is the number of completeness. So what this means is he gave to uh, the complete number of his servants the complete amount of what was needed to grow his kingdom. We don't want to read too much into hidden meanings or anything else like that, but who is it that Christ sends to grow his kingdom? You. He's put 
his love in your heart. And when you share that with your children, with your family and friends, his kingdom grows. So the servants in God's kingdom are believers. Now, if we look at verse 15, we're told, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he summoned the servants to him who had given the money. He wanted to find out what they had gained by conducting business. And if we look at verse 16, the first one says, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. You notice he doesn't stand before him and say, Look, Lord, you entrusted a mina to me, and I worked hard, and I invested it, and look at me, me, me. No. Your mina has earned ten more minas. It worked perfectly. And there's another servant who comes up to him in verse 18. He says, Master, your mina has produced five more minas. Not... Lord, I really worked hard and I produced five more minas using the mina you entrusted to me. Your mina has produced five more minas. Do you notice what's actually doing the work here? It's not the servants, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the mina. What is it that God has given to grow his kingdom? I think the Bible passage that would spell this out the best, at least my go-to, is Romans 10, verse 17. Because if you're in his kingdom, it's not a military kingdom in which it's won by, put, by strapping uh, swords on or grabbing guns. It's his rule in your heart. It's faith. But how do we get that faith? Romans 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through the word of Christ. What's the minor? It's God's word. It's God's word in law and gospel. Now we've got to be careful how we mention the law. Because the law always accuses, the law kills. The law does not make you a member of the kingdom. What the law does is rip your heart open like a plow ripping open soil. Because it tells you and I, you're a sinner. You're damned. And it's not until we understand that we're damned and that's exactly what we deserve. It's not until then that we would even appreciate hearing. And that's why God became a man and he lived perfectly for you and he took the punishment for you and he spilled his blood to wash your sin away and then he rose victorious to give you eternal life and he rose up to heaven and he ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit working through his word to give you that new faith that is clinging desperately to him. That all is the good news of the gospel. The gospel gives life. So it's God's word but it's especially the gospel, and there's more to that. And I think a Bible passage that I make my catechism kids memorize every year when I have catechism kids that really spells that out is what Jesus said at his ascension to heaven as recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Therefore go and gather disciples from all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to keep all the instructions I've given you. And surely I'm with you always until the end of the age. Notice Jesus tells them to gather disciples, but he tells them how to do it. By baptizing and by teaching. But each one of those, he qualifies something. How do we baptize? You're not baptized in the name of Fred Sherman. In fact, the that means nothing. It's the work of the triune God that's brought you in salvation, and his name represents that. So we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is how I was brought into God's kingdom. That's how many are brought into God's kingdom. Others are taught first and then they're baptized. 
Now, when it comes to the teaching, he adds a qualifier there. He says, and by teaching them to keep all the instructions I've given you. Notice God does not give us permission to teach his word falsely. Sometimes people think that to get the word out that God's foolish and he doesn't know what he's talking about, so you've got to change his word. Isn't it easy to just want to say we shouldn't proclaim the law at all because that's just going to offend people? Isn't it easy to then turn around and start changing other things? Sadly, you'd be surprised how many heresies in history begun by well-meaning Christians who thought God just needed their help. And they say lots of times, we'll teach this falsely now. They won't say falsely, but we'll correct it later. And then they never get around to correcting it. Teaching them to obey everything. Sometimes people zealous to get God's word right get it wrong because they're getting it right for the wrong intentions. Now, I've got to be careful how we understand that because when somebody is new to the faith, they've never known Christianity, they've never known the triune God before, I'm not going to begin by having them drink from the fire hose of the communication of attributes in Christ. They're going to get it as we teach when, when I explain that Christ is true God who became true man, but I'm not going to start on a lecture of the genus myostaticum of Christ. If you want to know what that means, it means that the deity of Christ was communicated to his humanity so he'd be able to do miracles. I start with the basics, right? But I'm not denying some of those other things. Neither are you. So notice how all ten of the servants are given a mina. And we've seen that the mina is God's word and sacraments, but especially the gospel. So... There's a blessing for you to understand because you're one of the servants. He's given it to everybody in the church. Uh, everyone who, who God brings into the faith, every member of the invisible church gets God's grace. That's why we're members of his church. Now, before we move on to the third servant, I want to point out something else. Uh, again, in verse 16, the first one came and said to him, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very small matter. You will have authority over ten cities. Doesn't it seem like this guy has earned it, but that's not what he says. He gave the guy the mina, the mina did the work, and then ultimately he says, because you proved faithful, I'll give you even more grace. But another guy comes along, that's verse 18. The second one came and said, Master, your mina has produced five more minas. So he said to him, you will be over five cities. Was it that guy's fault? If the mina did the producing, that one got half the other? What I'm trying to get at is, for example, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles, they go through somebody to fill that position that Judas has left vacant, and they use a process of elimination and narrow it down to some qualified guys, and they cast lots, and the lot falls on Matthias. And then we never hear about Matthias again. That doesn't mean that Matthias went off the deep end and became a false teacher, nor that he was unfaithful. In fact, we should assume he was faithful and that he did what an apostle was called to do, made sure that the word that the people were hearing was in accord with the word that he had heard from Christ. But then many years later, this guy named Saul comes along. He's persecuting the church. He's having Christians killed. And this Saul guy will take the word of God clear to Rome under house arrest, and if the tradition is right, he may have even made that, taken that word clear into Spain. Did Matthias do something different than the Apostle Paul? No. God entrusted both of them with the gospel, and they were both faithful. 
So when I first read this, I got to think maybe a good way to explain this is I'm a pastor, right? Your offerings empower me to study the word of God so that I can teach it to you and help you. Maybe I would be expected to have more uh, minus than you. Wait a minute. Unfortunately, I didn't just go right into studying to be a pastor. And when I worked at the pri- uh, in the prison, when I worked at the machine shops I worked at and stuff, I used to have a lot of co-workers come up to me because they knew I was a Christian and say, Fred, I have a question. Fred, life's getting rough. Fred, my parents have been diagnosed with cancer. Fred, my wife, you know, it went on and on. The amazing thing is I've come to recognize is sometimes maybe you might not feel like the gospel is growing as much through you as it is through your neighbor, but the grass is always greener on the other side. It is at work in you. As a pastor, usually by the time people come to talk to me, God has already used you to be at work to show the gospel. They're already believers. You're the front lines in this. Sometimes we can say, why isn't our church growing more than this other church? Or, and, and sometimes it can happen that you can have a call, uh, one pastor to lead another group of people and, and they can use the same principles and everything and it just doesn't seem to quite grow as much even though the gospel, the God's word never returns empty-handed. Different servants are placed in different circumstances. The gospel is always at work. So we got to be careful not to make it think like these guys' extra hard work is what prospered it because that's not the case in this parable. Now let's get to the last servant. Now, again, there are seven servants that aren't mentioned. We, they don't need to be mentioned. They put the mine at work. But there's one, and that's at verse 20. And another one came and said, Master... Here is your mina that I laid away in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you since you are a demanding man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, you wicked servant, I will judge you with your own words. You knew that I'm a demanding man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. It's very interesting, the cloth that our translation uses... It's actually in the original uh, Greek that Luke wrote in. It's a loan word from the Romans. It's a sweat cloth. It's what you use to, to dab all the heat off of you. Now, if you grew up in the late 70s and early 80s like I did, maybe you saw a lot of those exercise videos where people put sweat bands on. This guy has got the gospel. We know the mina is especially the gospel. And he's wrapped it in a cloth full of his sweat. People aren't going to touch that. That's disgusting, right? That's full of his sweat. He has a different view of the good news of salvation than everybody else does. Some of the views people can have of that are, we hear sometimes people saying things like, well, I'm too busy. I've got to earn my income. Therefore, I can't come to worship because I've got to work on Sundays. And I, I want to be very careful. Because there are people who work in emergency services and things like that who do. And, and, and the answer for that is then the congregation should offer another worship service. That's why it's so nice to have, like, for example, Advent and Lent services midweek. So some people, it's, they're wrapping it up in the mundane things of this world, and, and they're more concerned with it. The gospel just isn't so precious for them. Or what about another one? We call them legalists. These are people who, they have received the good news of salvation in Christ, but then they turn around and they add all kinds of law attachments to it. One of the big ones is when you have to repent and then God will forgive you. They're adding a law there. Think about it. God has to take you and I who are slaves to devil and make us his children. And only then could we even repent. 
Now, when human beings, we can't read minds, so when we announce forgiveness, we, we wait to see that. But there are many ways legalists constantly add different conditions. You've got to bow or stand at the right time. You've got to come so many times to worship. You've got to give the right amount of offering. All that is wrapping that precious mina in the blood, sweat, and tears of this world's ways. There's another way in which people can wrap that mina up into a, a sweat cloth. And that's one of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Laodicea. He says, you are neither hot nor cold since you are lukewarm. I will spit you out of my mouth and into the flames. They just were indifferent to it. They just didn't care. There are many ways in which uh, somebody can end up hiding that mina in the sweat cloths of this world. It's interesting that he refers to the mastery. Literally says, since I was fearing for myself because you are a strictly exacting man. Somebody who really, you know, you get the books out and they want every I dotted and every T crossed. The master says to him, you wicked servant, I will judge you with your own words. You knew that I was a strictly exacting man, so by your own words, you should have known to invest this. So yeah, I mentioned people before who will stay away from worship because they're too busy uh, trying, to, trying to earn extra in the ways of this world. You can tell the difference between those and the ones who want to come to church but their vocation doesn't allow it because you do offer service at a different time and the ones who love the word of the Lord will be there even though their jobs had not allowed it because maybe they were emergency workers, things like that. The legalist. The legalist who sits there and says, you've got to follow this condition, that condition, that condition. The thing that I always find quite interesting is how quickly that legalist will become a hypocrite. Here's a rule I hold up that you have to follow to be saved. Oh, that doesn't apply to me now that you're putting it down on me. You know, you'll be judged by your own words. The person who claims they love the Lord but don't really care, the Laodosians, yeah, that shows out too. And so ultimately what we want to see here is there's one more servant the problem is, he's lazy. He doesn't care. He wants something else. He disagrees with the master. Now, I want to point out one more thing there in verse 24 before we wrap up this sermon. He said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The servants say, they're pretty much are saying, this isn't fair. And that can lead us to falsely think that these guys, that it wasn't the mina that did the work. It was their blood, sweat, and tears. It was their extra faithfulness and their work righteousness. But you know, if God is going to be fair, we all go to hell. I sin by the minute. It's not fair that I've even, and you and I have even been made God's child, that we've been given a mina. And so, yeah, it's not fair that afterwards God says, well, that mina worked through you, so at the end, here's an extra glory. We don't know what heaven's actually going to be like other than it's going to be perfect. I don't know about you. I've never had a perfect hour in one day of my life, so I can't imagine a perfect eternity. But we do know that somehow... There's going to be some extra grace given to us, some extra glory when we go to heaven. But what that is, we know we won't be jealous because it's perfect. We know we'll have perfect love. What's fair in God's kingdom? God is a God of grace. So be careful not to make work righteousness the minas that did the work. It was God's gospel working through the servants. The servant that despised it or was neutral, 
that was the problem. Others had rejected it outright. But the ones who were faithful, maybe one didn't have quite as much returns as the other, but it was the mina, the gospel at work through them. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's wrap up this sermon. You, by God's grace, have the mina, which is God's word, especially his gospel. You are a child of God because Jesus is your Savior. He's planted his love in your heart and that love shining through you leads you to share the word of God with others. And it's God's work then. He simply is working through you and he has made you his child. Praise be to our Lord. Amen. Now he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.